You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. Second City is excited to work with Amazon as part of their new and exciting app called AMP. AMP is a home where anyone can create live radio-style shows alongside some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, including ours. Join the Second City live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central Time for our show, Second City Public Radio. SCPR is an interactive weekly lampoon of all things public radio. Each week, our host and an ever-expanding panel of Second City characters open up the lines to listeners from around the U.S. to ask questions and offer us opinions on a slew of wide-reaching subjects. Download the app, and don't forget to tune in. AMP. Thursdays at 5 p.m. Central Time. Today's pod is with Brian Wong, who is an entrepreneur and evangelist of the digital economy. Uh, He was the 52nd uh, employee of Alibaba uh, and the first American. Um, He has a new book. It's called The Tao of Alibaba, Inside the Chinese Digital Giant That is Changing the World. Enjoy the pod. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is getting to yes and. Days can be counted by the money you spend. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. Brian Wong, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here, Kelly. So I mostly don't know how many of my guests who we bring to the podcast are familiar with the improv concept of yes and, but it appears that you might be, or at least tangentially, because you write about Savio Kwan, who was Alibaba's COO, introducing the company to his yes theory, which sounded a lot like yes and. (laughs) You you picked that up. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. Tell us about that. Um, Well... You know, I think the uh, the the, area, the site that um, or the text that you're citing is really uh, when we're talking about Sabio Kwan's uh, management approach, and it also relates to kind of this concept of the DAO um, within Alibaba. And I think most people tend to think of decisions as binary, yes and no. Yep. And um, he, you know, he really says it's yes and yes. And the idea behind that is is life is really about. Um, Yes and yes. Uh, it's never one or the other. And it's really about how you calibrate or balance those decisions um, in, in life and in business, how you make those decisions. And so I think it's um, the reason why I use the analogy of Tao in the book uh, is really to show that it's really not black and white. It's shades of gray. And um, we have to sort of be able to embrace that, this duality, so to speak. And that happens to be a very key tenet of 
of a Chinese philosophical approach. So, you know, as an American that went to work for that uh, company, Alibaba, uh, for me, it, it actually took some adjusting. You know, I'm obviously my last name is Wong. I, I grew up in um, in California, however, like I've been in America, my family about 100 years. So mm. for me, it was also a cultural sort of awakening that, you know, the way that one looks at the world, sometimes you have to put it in the cultural context to, to, to really grasp what, what, what is happening. Yeah, because it's 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 a easier just to think in, in terms of black and white. Um, you know, our, our brains are we're storytelling machines. We, we like to make patterns, but that also doesn't get us necessarily to the truth. Uh, and I think the thing that, yep. that's sort of fascinating about this book, the story of this company is, is this philosophy, which really feels like it comes out of Jack, like Jack Ma, right? I mean, that, yep. that's, he, he, he's where this begins. So tell us a little bit about like how you met him and, and who Jack Ma is. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you know, Jack, um, Jack is, uh, obviously the founder of Alibaba, but his background is really as a, as a teacher. He, uh, you know, he started his career as an English teacher, uh, in China and, um, he he sort of stumbled, I guess, onto business uh, because as a teacher, he also became a translator. And as a translator, he be, he started to get involved in sort of representing sort of trade delegations that were going uh, abroad to the United States. And that's when he discovered the Internet. Um, and there's a great story behind that because he was trying to uh, recoup some, some investment that a Chinese company had uh, lost to a U.S. investor. And that investor... Um, technically held him hostage uh, in, in Nevada, and he escaped, uh, and he went to a casino and, and gambled enough money to buy a, a plane ticket to Seattle, which was the only city in America that he knew someone, mm. um, and that's where he discovered the internet. And, um, you know, for me, I uh, met Jack actually in, in California uh, in 1999 when he was trying to raise uh, funds for Alibaba. I guess he met like 32 venture capitalists, and didn't raise a single dime on that trip. Mm. But I was fortunate enough to meet him. And one thing that really struck me when I met him, and he was introduced to a friend uh, that was actually serving as his CFO um, at the time. And uh, what struck me was Jack's vision for what he wanted to do uh, with technology, but for um, an emerging market that clearly had great potential, but really people didn't feel that it was it was a good time uh, to be trying to do internet businesses um, in, in, in that country. There's a great quote you've got uh, from him where he says, Alibaba succeeded because one, we had no plan, two, no technology, and three, no money. Um, so <laughs> I think, again, uh, most people will be like, well, that doesn't seem like a plus. But in fact, when you're navigating complexity, sometimes having that yeah. like blank slate is, is the advantage. Absolutely. You know, um, again, Jack sort of talks in riddles, and most people were scratching their head uh, when he, he made that statement. I think it was at a Harvard Business School conference. And um, when, when you hear it, you're like, well, how, how do I interpret this? And, and really what Jack was saying is no business plan means that you know we're adaptable, we're willing to change um, when we need to. We're not going to lock ourselves into one way of doing things. No money uh, really meant that um, they had to use the limited resources that they had in order to uh, achieve the goals that they were. And so that actually forces you to be more creative mm -hmm. in the way you do business. Uh, and then no technology really refers to the fact that Jack was not a technologist. He was, like I said, an English teacher. But what he did 
understand was the need that existed in the market, and he trusted his technology team enough to kind of make the decisions necessary to try and provide solutions uh, using the tools that they had uh, to address those problems. And in some ways, if you think about a lot of the standard sort of, you know, internet uh, founders, they often have technical backgrounds, but because they understand so much about that, they end up micromanaging it to the point where they don't allow for that level of creativity to happen. So the the biggest revelation for me uh, in this book, and I think it's tied to that, that uh, is this idea of one of the ways Alibaba succeeded was because in China, let's say in, in the late 90s, there weren't things like shopping centers all over the place. So, so, so talk to us a bit about paint the picture of China in the late nineties and then how Alibaba sort of took advantage of that with this technology. So that's a good point, Kelly. I mean, China in the nineties had very little in the way of legacy or um, let's just say existing kind of retail infrastructure. It had very little in the way of kind of financial services very different from what we have here in, in the U.S. at that time. And what Jack liked to say is that um, uh, in, in America, uh, e-commerce is the dessert, and in China, e-commerce is the main course. Right. Uh, and what he, what he meant by that is that, you know, because there was nothing um, existing at that time in the retail and payment side, what they created – through the e-commerce platforms that they built and the payment systems really became the main method by which uh, people uh, you know, purchased and consumed things because there was nothing prior to that. When I lived in Hangzhou in the late 1990s, I remember just trying to find a, a, a box of Quaker Oats oatmeal uh-huh. was like – a huge task because, you know, nobody sold that stuff. I mean, as a Californian, I'm, I'm trying to be healthy and, you know, find the really good mm-hmm. stuff and it's nowhere to be found. Um, even something like uh, Oreo cookies was, was considered like uh, a nice thing to have because it was, it was, you know, uh, an American product. Um, so, so if you think about kind of the, the infrastructure that existed back then, e-commerce was, was very much a revolutionary thing because you can find all the products um, you know, from all over the world that, that were not available in the standard retail markets. This, this might be a good uh, uh, opportunity to sort of have you explain what Alibaba is for, for our listeners who okay. don't know. I just realized we hadn't covered that. Well, Alibaba, most people know it as sort of an e-commerce company. Um, uh, akin to, say, an eBay or an Amazon. And it actually is both of those. But it's also a PayPal. It's also, um, uh, you could say it's a, it's a Google, it's a Facebook, it's um, a YouTube, all combined into one, mm-hmm. um, mainly because the way that this platform uh, sort of evolved and emerged was, was really to kind of meet the needs of society at that time. And um, so... It started out as a B2B kind of wholesale um, marketplace, but then it evolved into consumer uh, retail. Uh, it, it also created a payment system. It has cloud computing, uh, and it has uh, a logistics network, and it also has an entertainment platform and a health uh, platform. Like I can go on and on because it, it just it's continued to expand, yeah. but that's really been based on how the um, consumer market kind of evolved in terms of their needs. And then one of the things that it did sort of incredibly, and I think this is a, a, a good for society, is sort of connecting these rural communities uh, to to 
a, a world that just they had no connection to, right? Yes. So, I mean, what happened after, uh, you know, sort of this this ecosystem was created kind of for the urban consumers and essentially you could find virtually anything from around the world on this, uh, what they call the Taobao marketplace, uh, similar to, to eBay. And then later something called Tmall, which was very similar to Amazon. But um, this phenomenon started to occur where you saw villages actually um, starting to uh, – connect to e-commerce first in terms of purchasing things and then in terms of selling things mm-hmm. and they were selling things to the uh, not uh, they were selling things to the urban urban uh, consumers themselves and we sort of well we as an Alibaba at that time discovered Taobao villages uh, this phenomenon starting in I think 2009 and it was really kind of an organic thing where a young person from the village would go to the city and study and get exposed to kind of, you know, this these um, e-commerce services and whatnot, and then return home to the village and then start a business within the village. And there are a number of cases, like um, there was a, a town um, called Shaji in, in Jiangsu province, where uh, this young man actually started a, a DIY furniture business, much uh, similar to like Ikea. Mm-hmm. And that business grew from one uh, to thousands of, of shops over a number of years because he had so much success in terms of selling this DIY furniture. And his neighbors noticed, uh, and they started to get in on the game. Then you started to have um, ancillary services like web design, logistics, packaging, shipping. And um, so you had a whole cluster ecosystem that was formed around this. Uh, and uh, today, I think it employs maybe 23,000 people in terms of that cluster in in the township and they do you know hundreds of millions uh, of dollars in turnover um and this is one of i think close to five six thousand of these taobao villages now that have evolved and emerged over the last um i would say 10 years and and so kelly you're right i mean what has happened is it's plugged the rural community into this mainstream economy and provided jobs that um, were not possible before if you stayed in the villages. Hmm. Uh, and it's allowed people to stay yeah, and, and, and do this kind of commerce. So kind of at the heart of this book to me is the values of Alibaba. And I'd love to go through those because I think they're, they're really interesting and, and um, uh, is really the Tao of Alibaba. So the, the first one is customers first, employees second, shareholders third. Um, I think yep. in America... It would go shareholders first, um, customers second, employees third is is my guess. Uh, <laughs> how about you? Yeah, I, I could see that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so this is something that Jack has uh, he he's always uh, said uh, since you know really the early days of the company, and it's something that they've continued to uh, really believe in, and and really the logic behind that is. Obviously, it's the customers that um, uh, are, are the most important. They constitute the business. And if you can satisfy the customer needs and, 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 and the pain points, then obviously you're going to feel satisfaction from your job as an employee. Mm-hmm. You're going to feel driven and, and, and feel like you're, you're making impact. And then you're, you're going to do an even better job. And then that's going to then um, impact you know, the performance of the company. And 
so so that's really the, the thought behind that. And it, you're right. It sounded like blasphemy many years ago, but I feel like today attitudes are sort of changing. Sure, because when you put the share, I mean, we see when you put the shareholders first, that then you know your ethics is a thing, cutting corners is a thing, um, you know, sh- yeah. a, a shortcut to profit is a thing, and I think okay, so number two, of course, is trust makes everything simple, and I think that speaks to yes. that. That speaks to why maybe shareholders are a third, because let's just if 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 trust we they, then we we don't have to worry about it. we don't have to sweat a lot of the hard stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I think we take for granted how important trust is in terms of facilitating engagements, uh, transactions. I think, um, you know, we see it in our modern society today, what, what we read in the media, how we interact with, with friends. Um, you know, there's certain things that are just given if you have that trust. If you don't have the trust, everything falls apart. Yeah. And I think that what, you know, Alibaba, what we tried to do in the early days is, is ma- establish and maintain that trust. So that um, regardless of the size of the company that was on the platform or the consumers that were, um, you know, buying from the platform, there was this sense of assurance that um, what they were getting was what they were expecting, that the payments were going to end up where they where they needed to go. And, um, you know, one of the things I think is very interesting about the company in the early days is not only did we take these values and, and really emphasize them internally to the to the staff and employees. I remember in the early days, I would go out to um, many of these towns and run these workshops and share the management principles at Alibaba externally yeah. to the business owners and the merchants. And I thought that was a bit strange. Like, why are we spending so much time sharing our internal values and management system to our customers? I think that's about transparency. I think it's also about them trying to understand who we are as an organization and how we think. And then um, allowing them to kind of f- sort of understand uh, what's inside this organization that they're putting so much, uh, you know, relying so much on for their own uh, business, um, you know, success. We had a scientist on the podcast who uh, studies uh, human beings' love of things, um, which, mm. is, which is a thing. Uh, but I think part of that is also we we tend to we, we love certain products and we identify character we give them sort of human characteristics and i think so part of what's going on yep. there too is you're presenting this sort of transparent your philosophy as a way for people mm-hmm. to then you know uh be loyal uh to the product so and, yes. and so the third value is change is the only constant um which is i i think just such a interesting <laughs> so was that the were these values like in the early 90s right when you started was this was it changed right over time stuff got added or it changed to be honest so this is the third iteration of mm-hmm. the company values um but there's a lot of common threads um and uh you know change is the only constant is an evolution of one value that was called embrace change so okay. it's not that different except that um i think it just makes it more definitive in terms of this is something that will be here forever and you know, I mean, in the early internet days, everything was kind of like just on fire and, and, and just yeah. upside down. And um, I think that the the feeling is that you have to always have that mindset that you you got to be ready for um, this this volatility, this this uncertainty, and that's why you know it is a constant. And I think that's also a key to to conditioning people to be willing to accept rapid. Um, in you know changes in, in volatility within a business because 
you've already been warned. <laughs> you know, change yeah, is the only constant. It's grittier than embracing change. I think it's it's it's. Yeah. I, I, I imagine you getting kicked around a little bit. You're like, all right, let's make this a little, you know, uh, <laughs> a little harder because uh, it's going to be. Yeah. Um, the fourth is today's best performance is tomorrow's baseline. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. I, I think some people feel like you're you're changing the goalpost, you know? Yeah. It's like, hey, I just achieved my goals and now you're kind of um, you know, you're shifting the, 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 the measurements. Look, again, we all know that the internet space is so competitive and um the the, the rate of growth, uh the rate of change is is so so extreme. And I think it was really intended to say that um, while we reward for good uh, performance and contribution, be ready for the next challenge. And I think that in a lot of ways uh, that that's just a realistic expectation if we want to stay competitive and survive. And again, it's kind of putting it out there as you, let's say you join the company and we say, here are our six values. It's like, whoa, okay, am I ready for this? Is that mm-hmm. is this what I'm going to uh, have to, you know, take on? But the truth of the matter is, is, is it pushed people to really um, achieve great things? I remember so many times where we had what we call stretch goals that seemed humanly impossible, but we achieved them because there was this spirit of, you know, we can do it and uh, we'll come together and, and make it possible. So number five is if not now, when, if not me, who that that's a, that's a good one. That, that feels, um, <laughs> it, that, I think, you know, we might call that a bias for action. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so this, a lot of these phrases you asked, you know, were these values always here? A lot of these that we took were from the early days of the company. We call them sort of cloak, uh, um, sort of Alibaba. I mean, famous sayings and uh-huh. we took them in their entirety because we felt in the past we just had one word descriptions of values and this was really kind of taking the whole phrase to capture the essence and um if not now when if not me then who was actually the first english phrase we used in our uh first classified job ad uh for huh. the company in 1999 wow and like you said it is um it's it, it and a sense of ownership, like, yeah. okay, if I don't do it now, then when am I going to do it? And then if it's not me, then then who else is going to step up? Mm-hmm. And I think that if, if that resonates with the, the reader or the person that sees it, um, then it, it means that it's it's something that, that they can relate to. It activates something within them. Okay, and this last one, I think we can get a little deep on, which is number yeah. six, live seriously, <laughs> work happily. All so right, again, doesn't it sound like it should be the other way around? Yes, it does. Totally sounds like it should be the other way around. <laughs> and I think, I think especially like the international staff, they'd read this and they're like, "What the heck are you talking about?" Mm-hmm. Like, um, and, and really, the message here is: think very, you know, deliberately about what kind of life you want to live. What yeah. does that look like? What does it entail? And then find a vocation that will help achieve that kind of life you want. And um, if you do that, then you're going to have great enjoyment in the work that you do. It's not going to be a job. It's going to be a a passion or pursuit. And I thought that's a very clever value, um, the way it's phrased, because I think it's, like you said, it's very philosophical, but it says a lot if you really go deep into it. 
Yeah. I mean, we had a happiness expert on uh, who talked about um, if you want to be happy, pay attention to what you're paying attention to. Um, and so I think this idea of understanding we have this one brief short life. So what are yeah. we paying attention to? And since work dominates so many hours that we have in a day, make sure yes. you're doing something that, you know, is meaningful to you, that pleases you, that 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 is yeah. that is um, not too easy and not so difficult that you're not going to uh, achieve anything. in it. And that's and, and again, that's not I don't think any of us were brought up to think that we're always sort of thinking the other way. Absolutely. I've got another one for you that's a bit controversial. I wonder what you'd say to this. Okay. But uh, in, in, at Alibaba, we, we sometimes say that life is work and work is life. Mm-hmm. Just uh, And, you know, I think that'd be very controversial in these days uh, because everyone talks about work-life balance. But I think that the, the essence here, again, is if you find something that really fits into that, you know, the, the kind of um, purpose that you're, you're pursuing, then it's it's less about the job and more about achieving or pursuing that 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 you know what what's important to you in life. But also there's a, there's a belief that when you work, you're learning things that can be applied to your everyday life, and in life there are things that can be applied to your everyday work. So it's not to say that you shouldn't have time for your family or do the things that are important, um, but I think that. If you compartmentalize, as opposed to kind of see how those uh, two elements sort of fit together, you're actually depriving yourselves of, of great lessons and, and kind of wisdom that can enhance the other side. Yeah, I think the the a constant <laughs> on here is that work life balance is a is is not a thing. Like it's it's impossible. There's there's just no it's it's impossible. We've had guests who've talked about work life sway. Some people kind of like that. Okay work-life integration um and and, yeah but you know and again like i'm the worst with this because like i i love my job so much i met my wife here my my kids studied here (laughs) at second city so like you know it's it it doesn't feel like a job i get to work with like hilarious people who are are oh yeah sounds like a dream job yeah 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 and and again it's not always easy um and at times it's Mm. been tremendously difficult but you know, I felt I and I fell into it. I was a dishwasher here and ended up, you know, staying forever. Um, so Fantastic. Uh, one thing I wanted to talk about, too, because I, you know, obviously there's so much in the news, uh, especially this week uh, about China. Um, but one yeah. aspect that you talk about with the government is a lack of regulation in the early days, which <laughs> I think would shock Americans. So tell, <laughs> tell us about that. Well, yeah. So one of the things in the book I try and do is set the context of of the environment um, during which Alibaba was born and evolved. And the truth of the matter is, is that, um, you know, there were only 8 million Internet users um, when Alibaba was started. I think the per capita income was eight hundred dollars and there was, you know, pretty much nothing there. And over the, the following 20 years, the company grew and so did the country and you know to the point where now it's like 1.2 billion internet users and i think it constitutes 52 percent of the world's e-commerce so it's a much different sort of (laughs) world today i think the per capita income is about ten thousand dollars so the government in in a lot of ways was very laissez-faire um to encourage innovation to encourage kind of development in this sector um what they did provide were things like infrastructure you had roads you had 
you know, internet connectivity. There was a lot of investment in, in all of this. So it provided an enabling environment and fertile soil for the rise of, say, uh, e-commerce companies. But other than that, they just had them duke it out. And, and you know, you had hundreds of, of you know, e-commerce or maybe even thousands of e-commerce entrants at that time trying to build, um, you know, marketplaces and, and, and different, different platforms. Um, but it wasn't until later when the, these businesses started to take more shape and get traction that they started to be regulated. And the truth of the matter is, for a time, they were too small for anyone to care. Yeah, you know, um, and and it was really kind of a wait and see. But I think that late touch, so to speak, approach allowed for a lot of innovation to blossom. And um, obviously, it's a different if it's a different time now. I think though this is kind of a global phenomenon. I mean, you see a lot of regulation um, in the last three years kind of coming into play in China, but you also see a lot of you know backlash against big tech in the U.S. and Europe, right? I, yeah. I think we're kind of at that stage where we where we have to sort of figure out how to manage this. Um, yeah. So you finished. I imagine you finished writing this like a year, year and a half ago, right? I started it about two years ago, and I, I finished it about maybe seven months ago. Yeah. Okay. So seven in that seven-month time, has anything sort of changed in the way that you would be like, oh, I might, I might add this or, or end this book differently? <sighs> Good question. Uh, you know what? Probably there's a lot of things I, I think I would, I would maybe append or add some commentary. I mean, I think that um, – we're in a more challenging uh, environment part of, for part of the reason you mentioned in terms of regulation, but also in terms of what I think was really, uh, in a lot of ways, uh, uh, you know, this connectivity that the world had uh, mm-hmm. between East and West and um, a lot of flow of ideas, but also people and, and commerce. And I think that's starting to really obviously um, start to become um, more siloed. Uh, I think there's a lot more distrust in the world today. And um, I th- think what I would say to that is it's it's not just going to affect like U.S. and China, but I think it's going to affect the whole world because there's been so much benefit that came from this um, interconnectedness uh, in places like Southeast Asia, Africa, Latin America. Uh, and I was part of that uh, at the, you know, say two, three years ago, the tail end of my time at, at the company. I saw how people were getting inspired by these models, by getting inspired by the stories and actually creating, um, you know, prosperity in their local countries using technology. I think my hope is that that doesn't um, get too disrupted amidst kind of this more geopolitical tension that we can continue down that road where uh, a lot of these emerging markets, those who have been um, deprived of the access will still be able to use this technology to uh, connect with the mainstream kind of economies. Uh, because I think this this digital sort of revolution, there's a lot of risks that come with it that I think a lot of people are talking about now, but we shouldn't forget the benefits of, of what it brings. Yeah, for sure. So you, I'm, I, I lost count as to how many times you left, <laughs> joined and left Alibaba. <laughs> Three? No, four? no, yeah. And you're not there Yeah, now. I left... No, I'm not. And yeah, I'm not planning to go back anytime soon this round. But I, I left um, 
Gosh, I went. I, I think I left um, twice. I went back three times. Okay, so and it seems like the the, <laughs> the one thing the the job that you had that seems to me that you were most proud of was in 2016 when Jack asked you to help think about creating a new school. Uh, that 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 felt like a, there was some passion leaping leap, leaping off the page. You know, I think it was exciting for me because it it, it allowed me to finally take my experience and, and, and share it uh, with others to kind of help inspire them to do things that um, I th- think, you know, uh, is, is very meaningful. Um, really, it's about taking their their dreams and ambitions uh, around the use of technology and also affect their communities in the same way that I uh, had been a part of Alibaba doing that for kind of the, the Chinese, um, uh, you know, sort of market. And um, to be able to uh, work with these entrepreneurs and see the the impact in their local communities, I think was very powerful for me, particularly in that stage of my career, because I felt like it, it, it was a time for me to try and uh, help others as opposed to try and just do, you know, be part of a, a business and do the, the daily work there. It was also a great opportunity to kind of share the experience and, um, and, and support them in, in their, their endeavors. And one of the things you talk about that, uh, which is a very improv thing, is this idea of unlearning. <laughs> so that, that is a oh, when, when yeah. you come in your first improv class, it's almost all essentially sort of mindfulness type exercises to get you comfortable with the fact that you're going to fail a bunch, uh, to get you out of judgment of self and judgment of others. All those sort of things, again, very Eastern uh, a, a, as well. Yeah. But but I think sort of essential if you're going to build people uh, who are going to be top performers. And I don't think we do it enough at, in, in any of our businesses. So the unlearning, a lot of that was, uh, how should I say previously held assumptions and also things that I learned say in like business school. And what I, what I expected is I could go uh, back to, cause I, I went to business school in between two, two stints at, at Alibaba thinking that what I, needed amidst all the chaos happening at the company, I needed to go back to school and learn the right way of doing things and then return to the company and kind of show them how it's done. And one of the things I realized is a lot of the lessons that I learned in business school weren't working in, yeah. in that environment at Alibaba. And um, so I had Jack's like, why did you go to business school and spend all that money and time? You should have stayed here and you would have learned more. Uh-huh. And, you know, Again, like many things that Jack says, it has it has an element of truth, um, but you also have to kind of put it in the context. Obviously, an MBA it's very useful, but probably at a company that's more developed, more structured, and more yep. mature. Um, and and so when I had to unlearn these things, I think it it challenged my perceptions of kind of what. Um, what you needed in life to be successful just because you had like the credentials just because you kind of did the right path it doesn't always end up kind of uh, in the way that you expect or being uh, turning out the way you expect because there's so many other scenarios in life that maybe you don't see if you don't step outside your normal sort of comfort zone and so yeah it was a it was a humbling experience but i think it just kind of taught me more and allowed me to enhance my MBA education. Not that it was, you know, not useful. It just became useful later. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That, that's a great way of putting it. Uh, before, <laughs> before we ask you for a yes and story, what are you doing now? Yeah. 
Well, I am actually um, running a small media uh, platform, um, uh, and in what I what the focus is is really trying to bridge understanding of cultures, uh, particularly youth culture, uh, in in um, the China region and uh, the West. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, we focus on things like uh, entertainment, uh, music, uh, art, design, uh, and um, anything that would be interesting to kind of the millennials and Gen Zs mm-hmm. uh, from this part of the world um, so that they can get a more nuanced understanding of what's happening here on the ground. I think that for me, you can see there's there's sort of a, a pattern here is trying to bridge cultural understanding yeah. and do it in a way, I think first through technology, that was through entrepreneurship because I think that is a very kind of universal thing. An entrepreneur in America, in, in Europe, or in Asia is the same kind of animal because they have to take on such risk and challenges and um, solve problems, right? And I think when it comes to culture, you know, whether it's music, film, art, um, it's a universal medium, but it'll it'll allow you to kind of communicate with one another through visual and, and auditory. And so I'm trying to, um, you know, help bridge that understanding in this way um, while I'm here. And uh, what else am I doing? Yeah, I mean, I'm still doing some investment in uh, in like startups because that helps me utilize my past experience um, in the region. So yeah. it's interesting. Um, um, Danny Kahneman talks about seeing seeing the world as a problem that that's there to be solved. Yeah. I think Jack says something very similar. And I just wrote down the yeah. fact that you're working on cultural understanding and nuance. So if you want to talk about problem in 2022, you are you are in it. <laughs> that that is. <laughs> problem yes not a lot of right. not a lot of cultural understanding <laughs> uh all right we, we always end the program asking for a yes and story do you have one for us okay so i'll go to the um conversation i had with jack um uh, in the, the 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 final sort of return to to ali before um i made the decision i said you know jack i i'm i'm feeling frustrated with the startup that i so I'm involved with like what should I do as a next step? And he said, Brian, uh, why don't you go find the poorest part of China? Um, go travel there, stay in a town or a village for a few days. If you're um, comfortable, then move on to an, another place. If you're mm-hmm. uncomfortable, then stay longer. I, I think I wrote about this in the book. Yep. And I was thinking, why on earth would anyone want to do that? It's like intentionally going somewhere to find the most like unpleasant experience and just mm-hmm. wallow in it. But, um, yeah, and I did it and it turned out to be quite, uh, eye opening for me because it, uh, allowed me to kind of understand myself better mm-hmm. and understand what is important to me in terms of the things that I value and that I uh, feel, are important to kind of address. And that helped me kind of come to decision in terms of what I uh, did next. Yeah. We have, we obviously human beings really avoid a lot of discomfort for, for obvious reasons, but I don't know of any achievement or anything of meaning that didn't arise out of a fair amount of discomfort. And that goes from working out to a relationship to having kids, all that stuff, right? I mean, it's like it's the bulk of that true. time is not is not good or easy. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's strange how that works. But it, but uh, you look back on it and you say, wow, that was very valuable for, for, for my life, you know? Yeah. Um, the, the, yeah. Bo- the book is called The Tao of Alibaba, Inside the Chinese Digital Giant That is Changing the World. Brian Wong, thanks for coming on the pod. Thanks so much, Kelly. The Getting to Yes Hand podcast is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. We are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. Our show is produced by Andrew Harris at WGN. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more about The Second City, you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com. Peace.